The people of Israel, they loved Saul because he was tall. Uh, Saul, he was a head taller, we're told, than everybody else. He was a king to be proud of, a king to make them like every other nation. Um, But Sarah looked down, has just read 28 verse 20, where it says, Saul fell full length. That's a big deal for him. Full length on the ground. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Um, We're here this morning to see the death of Saul. We're actually looking at all of chapters 27 to 31. And it is a tragedy. It's told with huge sympathy for this broken man. And yet also, this is just what we've been expecting. It's even what we've wanted for chapter after chapter. We know that Saul cannot be God's king and cannot save God's people. And we know that because the God of 1 Samuel is the God of Hannah's prayer back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, is the God who lifts up the humble and pushes down the proud. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken but he will give strength to his king. And each week we've asked, um, what could Saul have done or what should Saul do? So I want to ask that one last time here. 28 verse 4, he's facing an invasion and he is terrified. Verse 5, what should he have done? And we said it last week, what he should do is abdicate. There is somebody else who could be king. Someone who Saul knows will be king. Someone who everyone knows God wants to be king. And all Saul needs to do is ask. Saul's in a situation where he needs a friend. He needs an army. He needs God on his side. And you wonder, maybe his son Jonathan um, told him again what he should do. Just send for David. Take off your crown and beg for his mercy and ask him to be king instead. And in that version of the story, just imagine it. So David, at this point, is three miles away in the Philistine camp, and he's wondering how he's going to get out of having to fight against the Israelites. Tomorrow, it's the biggest dilemma of his life. And then suddenly, there's a messenger, someone who's who's managed to sneak into the Philistine camp. And he's got there carrying a sort of dirty bundle of rags. And, and, And David, he unwraps the rags and the crown. Is there. And a message from Jonathan saying, Saul has committed himself under guard. Uh, He's arrested and you can be king. Come back to us. And you imagine David and his 600 men, they sneak out of the camp and they um, sneak across the valley under cover of darkness. And so that morning at daybreak, the army welcomes him back. The general is back. And so as, as the sun comes up, the, um, the Philistines look across the valley and King Achish, he realizes he's lost his bodyguards and Israel has gained 600 men. But more than that, there at the front of the army, there is a, a shorter man, but wearing a crown and carrying the sword of Goliath. And the Israelites, they know that God is with David, David who killed his tens of thousands. And then behind David to his right is Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of the old king, and the warrior of Michmash Gibeah, and even maybe to his left behind him, can it be? There is a a tall man, taller than everyone else, Saul the Forgiven. And that day they fight together as one 
against the enemy. And more importantly, the Lord fights for them and gives strength to his anointed. And so the the Philistine invasion turns into a total rout. And they celebrate for a thousand years and all live happily ever after the end. See, in 1 Samuel, there is no future for Saul in opposing God. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. But with God and his king are mercy and grace and victory and salvation for the people. But in the real story, we're now going to work our way through. Saul does what most of us do. And Saul continues on the path that he chose long ago. And so in our story, he is on the ground, face down, without strength. But he finds the strength to keep opposing God and keep walking towards his disastrous, tragic end. So we're going to try and do chapters 27 to 31 today, but we read 28 deliberately. Um, And that is partly because it is the strangest chapter, Um, But it's also because it's where we're told what is going on. So just look at page 301 and chapter 28, verses 16 to 19, which is where Samuel somehow speaks one more time. And just before we look at it, let me say a few things about this chapter. Notice um, chapter 28, it is not trying to teach us about where the dead go uh, after they die. And it is not at all recommending what Saul does. Um, This is a practice that even Saul had made illegal, 28 verse 3. It um, doesn't make any sense what he does. Verse 15, he says, well, God won't talk to me anymore, so I thought I'd ask God's prophet, even though he's dead. It's just sort of, it's a strange thing to do. Um, And the chapter, it's a, a horror film, really. Scary and spooky and disturbing. But even with the medium doing her seance, Notice that God is the one in charge in all of this. Six times in four verses, Samuel says what the Lord will do. And what the Lord will do, it is the same as what the Lord said he would do before. So Saul's bit of um, witchcraft, it changes nothing. Um, Sadly, today, there are still people who get involved in the occults and in things like this. It's very important for us to know that those people... They have no power over God whatsoever, and therefore no power over God's people. Um, There's no way for Saul to use this bit of witchcraft to change what God is going to do to David that he'd already decided. The only risk here is to Saul himself, the person breaking his own rule and God's rule. He's the one who ends up on the floor as a broken man. He's the one who dies in battle the next day. Um, All of the the dead in the grave, all of the mediums and the spiritists in the world, all of the Philistine soldiers in the army, none of them can change what God has decided to do and has promised to his people. And that is the point of this Bible book. Um, Not at all anything that would make us afraid of people who risk themselves only by getting involved in these kind of practices. So, Page 301, Samuel speaks, 28, 16 to 19. And I I want um, Samuel to preach the sermon this morning. Um, I want our main points to be his main points. So verse 16, he says, why do you consult me? Um, I'm the Lord's man and he's your enemy now. Notice, not the Philistines. 
And the bigger problem for Saul is God is his enemy. So this is what Samuel says. Um, One, verse 17, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands, just as he said. And two, he's given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Verse 18, that's going to happen tomorrow. And actually you and your sons, they will be in the grave tomorrow. And all Israel defeated by the Philistines. And then point three is the why. Um, Verse 18, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. Which is just 1 Samuel chapter 2. The proud will come down, that's point one. The humble will be exalted, that's point two. And that is because the proud don't listen. Um, It's actually deeply ironic here that he, he's in the tent or the hut with the medium because he wants to hear from God. He says, please speak to me. Uh, tell me what to do, verse 15. And God's answer is, God had already told you what to do repeatedly, and you would not obey him. Um, if you wanted more on that, you could go back and listen to some of the sermons from uh, a while ago when we preached through these chapters. You'd see how it all started for Saul, very, very small and very understandable. Saul, really, he's, he's trying to help God out, just a, a little bit of disobedience for a good cause. You'd see how God warned him and how God said the only kind of king who can save God's people is a humble king. A king who is not a rival to God. A king who will obey God all of the time. And Saul, he's not you. Um, Which sets up the story that we're going to rush through now. Um, Five chapters, and they're five chapters in parallel. Parallel lives. If you were filming this, you would um, cut between Saul and David. You might even, um, do you remember the sort of split screen thing they used to do in trendy TV in the 90s? You might do that. There's David doing his thing and there's Saul doing his thing. So here is the, the split screen summary. Um, and the giveaway is that mention of the Amalekites uh, in what Samuel says. Um, see, we have a very similar, they both start in terrible situations, David and Saul. Um, then Saul is told, this is all happening because you didn't do what I told you with the Amalekites. And then David's situation gets worse, chapter 30, and it's all the fault of the Amalekites. Then they both decide they need to hear from God. And for Saul, that takes an entire chapter, an illegal medium, a dead prophet, and he's left broken by it. For David, it takes about five minutes. Uh, And then they both fight. And I think this, the fight, David's fight anyway, is like the bit, do you remember the, um, the 80s game show where they always used to show the contestants what you could have won? Very cruel thing to do. Here's the car you could have won. Um, David in these chapters is superb. This is the king you could have had. And Saul is defeated, tragic and alone. So I'm going to follow Samuel's order, and we'll look at Saul first of all. The kingdom is torn from you. Um, Saul's terrible situation is this invasion. It's the united armies of the five kings of the Philistines. And verse 6 of chapter 28 tells us how life used to be for Saul. Um, Whenever he wasn't sure what to do, he had options. He could ask God, his own dreams maybe, or his high priest, or the prophets, not least Samuel. But now... Saul won't listen to God. 
So in the end, God will no longer speak to him. Um, Samuel, he, he doesn't tell Saul anything that Saul doesn't already know in 28 verse 16. Saul has told us that in chapter 24 and chapter 26. So Saul, he um, stumbles back to his army. And somehow he gets out of bed to lead the battle, knowing that God is his enemy. And chapter 31, just, just turn to chapter 31. It, it could be told very, very differently. Because in Saul, we have this is God's enemy. This is the man who hated David without a cause. He tried to murder David a hundred different ways. It's his fault. But the, the story, it is so kind, so tragic, so sympathetic to Saul. So there's a battle. The battle goes badly. Of course it does. The Israelites fled and many are killed and the Philistines chase them. Verse 2 is awful. 31 verse 2, in a single verse, the three sons of Saul are killed, which means Jonathan, David's friend, who we thought would serve alongside David his whole life, and they killed him. Then verse 3, the fighting is fierce around Saul. And and maybe at that point in the story, we remember Saul's quite a good soldier too. He's like David. Uh, David can kill tens of thousands, but Saul killed his thousands. So even a broken man, they can't get near him. He's tall and he's strong and he's fighting to the end until the archers arrive. So maybe imagine a, a small hill. Um, in the mountains of Gibeah, and uh, Saul is on the top, and nobody can get through his guards. And then there are archers on the left, and archers on the right, and archers behind him. And Saul is shot in the leg, and shot in the shoulder, shot in the back. And he's on his knees now, but he's still fighting. And he begs his armor bearer, kill me. Don't let there be a Philistine who can say, I have killed the king of Israel. But the boy is too frightened, so Saul falls on his own sword, followed by his servant. And everybody falls with him. Verse 7, in every town, they hear about the defeat and they just abandon them and go back to hiding in the hills. And so the next day, the enemy finds four corpses and they get to announce it to their people and, strangely, to their gods. Do you see verse 9? It's a crazy kind of god who you have to tell what's happened. But look, they say. The gods of the Philistines have defeated the God of Israel and the corpses are nailed to a wall. It's a a tragic death for a a well-intentioned but weak man. A man who in the end just would not obey God. So the, the kingdom is torn from him. And if you were laying odds, humanly speaking, at the end of chapter 31, you would just say that is it for Israel now which means that is it for God's plan to save the world through Abraham's children, would mean that sin and death and curse has won. Okay, but Samuel also tells us more. Torn from Saul and given to David. And really, that's the story of 2 Samuel. I think we'll get there sometime next year. But in the parallel battle where David also fights a battle, that is where we see what we could have won. Let's see how it is when the people of God have a king 
who is after God's own heart. And right at the center of the story is that little bit where he asks God, which goes past so quickly you'd almost miss it. So um, the situation, David is also in a terrible situation. In fact, he's in three terrible situations and they keep getting worse. Um, At the start, he flees Israel to go and hide with King Achish of Gath, which is not a great plan. Um, It didn't work in chapter 21 and it only works this time because Achish hates Israel so much. He accepts David only on the condition that David will now kill Israelites. Uh, 27 verse 12. Um, The plan is everyone will now hate David. Saul hates him. The Israelites will hate him. And you get the impression Achish hates him as well. He's just quite glad to have another soldier. And David briefly manages to cover this up. Uh, He pretends to kill Israelites. But you think, surely... This is not going to work for very long. Um, Then it gets worse, 28 verse 1, because there's a war. Of course there's going to be a war between the Philistines and Israel. It's one thing to pretend to kill Israelites when they're 200 miles away, but it's going to be pretty obvious on a battlefield, isn't it? And then it gets worse, 29 verse 2, because that's the point when the rest of the Philistine army notice who Achish has brought with him. They say, isn't that the man who killed our friends and my father and our brothers? And so there's a kind of tense exchange. And we don't really know how it's going to go, whether David will be killed. And amazingly, he walks away a free man. Um, He even has to play the part of the kind of reluctant, offended soldier. Can't believe you don't trust me. I want to kill Israelites. Uh, He heads off in a strop. But then it gets a lot worse. 30 verse 1. By the time David gets home, he finds that in his absence, the Amalekites have come and they burned the village. And verse 2, they took captive the women and everyone else. Verse 3, the sons and the daughters. So verse 4, David's tiny army, they wept until they had no strength left to weep. Um, and in case uh, we weren't sure, verse 5 tells us that the, um, the hero, do you remember of chapter 25, Abigail, she was the hero, Abigail the brilliant, well, she is a slave now. And verse 6, David's men know who to blame. David is responsible, so they plan, let's stone him to death. So it looks like this is going to be a book with two dead kings, doesn't it? How the book will end. Two dead kings and all of their sons, and then God's plan will really be over. Terrible situation. Notice that David's situation is far worse than Saul's. That's important, I think. Um, Saul, he reacts badly for years when he's surrounded by prophets and priests and he's in all the comfort of his army and his palace but David here he is alone he's in the burned out ruins of a village in the wrong country with all of his own men ready to kill him and at that point David reacts in the opposite way to Saul so look at the end of verse 6 in chapter 30 which says but David found strength in the Lord his God. Remember what Hannah prayed? The Lord will give strength to his anointed. And that is not Saul anymore, lying on his face with all his strength gone. But David found strength. And what is it that you do if you are a strong king of God's people? 
What is it, the, um, the hard thing to do, the right thing, the need strength thing to do? Well, 30 verse 7, you call for the priest and you ask God what to do. And all the way since Adam and Eve, that's been the thing that we are not strong enough for, to listen to God, to obey him, and do the frightening thing and follow him. Um, so um, blink and you'd miss it, but David asks God what to do. And there are no witches and no ghosts and no dead prophets and no screaming. It's just verse 8, shall I pursue them? And then, yes, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. That's how it should be. So straightforward. So David then has a battle as well. Cut into those scenes of Saul and his battle. Um, 600 tired men chase after an army, and then 200 of them are too tired to go any further and have to stay behind. So 400 go on and meet an abandoned slave. And in that person, you learn how Amalek treats captured wives and sons and daughters. And you also learn how David will treat anyone from any nation who turns to him. See, Saul and the Amalekites, they bring fear and slavery and death, whereas David brings freedom and life. So they revive this poor slave and they free him. And then he leads David to the hill above the Amalekite camp, 30 verse 16. And uh, there they were scattered over the countryside, drunk and celebrating their victory. A huge army, so big that um, we're told how many of them managed to escape the tiny handful that escaped because they got to the camels first, and that was 400 people, the tiny handful who escaped, which is the same size as David's entire army. But can you see this story from Abigail's perspective? Um, Remember, uh, what we're doing here is what you could have won. Uh, Saul, he could have gone into the battle of Jezreel with David by his side, with David as his king. Here is how it could have gone. So imagine verse 17 for Abigail. Um, Imagine that that dawn, that morning. Abigail, she's been in chains for days, um, probably without food, certainly without hope for the future. Um, This is the brilliant, decisive, beautiful Abigail from chapter 25, stuck in the middle of this drunken army of her enemies. At the very least, last night must have been absolutely terrifying. And now she is thinking it's all over. Um, Her husband, the king, uh, he is hundreds of miles away, isn't he? Um, In a war, a war that he really has no hope of coming out well from. He'll either be a traitor or he'll be dead. So that dawn, she has very little hope. And then at first light, David launches out of the mists at the drunken camp of the Amalekites. And as the the noises change and the shouting begins, imagine she looks northwest and sees the sword of Goliath in the hand of the slayer of ten thousands. If if you don't like romantic battle stories about kings, then I'm very sorry for your loss. But here is the king, her husband, outnumbered hundreds to one but with God on his side, come to rescue her, her children, and everybody's children. And the victory is total. And David does what Saul had refused to do, defeat the Amalekites. 
And then there is freedom and there is plunder. Uh, Even for those who didn't fight, they're given back their wives and their children and then treasure. And then there's treasure left over for David's fugitives and treasure for the villages of Israel who saw it abandoned. This is what happens if the people of God have a king like David, a king like Jesus, someone humble and obedient who listens to God. And what I want to do is finish with uh, Samuel's because. This happens to Saul because he did not obey the Lord. And our um, first application, I hope, is obvious. And in a sense, we've been singing, the songs have been carefully chosen this morning to direct us to Jesus as our king, the one who does obey the one who obeys because he is humble, because he is the king we need. Which means for us, there is no vacancy for king. Um, There's no vacancy. When the book of Samuel was written, there, there was a vacancy and also a puzzle. They lived through good kings and bad kings, and actually none of them were good enough, including David, we will see in 2 Samuel. So how can we find a king who is powerful enough to rescue, but also never does anything wrong? who obeys God all of the time, humble and obedient. So the application this week, same as last week and the week before, is wonder at Jesus. This is the rescue that we have won. It's not just what you could have won. We have won this through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And on the day we see him again, it will be like verse 17 for Abigail, as Jesus comes to rescue his people. Further back in the series, we applied Saul um, more closely and more directly to us. Uh, Saul, he is human. He is very flawed. But he is told here in the narrative with sympathy, for understanding, for identification with him. But we said then, he's not quite like every single Christian. He's not just like all of us in our daily struggle to obey God, Um, though there may be lessons for us there. Um, Saul, he is the leader of God's people. Um, When Saul makes decisions, they affect everyone. So the closest parallel today, I think, is church leaders, especially those at a national level. Uh, It's those who face the burning heat of difficult decisions about obeying God in the, the full light of a hostile and changing world. Um, so in just a couple of minutes, I want to tell you a little bit about the um, the last few weeks for me. Um, some of you know about this, but for the last few weeks, I've been seconded to the Church of England Civil Service, uh, which maybe if you've been trying to email me, why you've not had much joy, um, helping the bishops of the Church of England work on a decision that they are going to make on the 12th to the 14th of December, so in eight days' time. Um, And the decision they're going to make is a decision about same-sex relationships. And as we talk about that briefly, um, people sometimes pose that as if same-sex attracted people are somehow causing a problem facing the church. Um, I want to emphasize same-sex attracted people, they're not a problem for the church. They are the church. Um, Here in this church and in every church, no matter what, uh, is, what position that church takes on the issue, real people living in a, um, at least in the Western society, in a society that says you're not really a human being if you're not sexually expressing uh, the things that you, you desire. And 
they're living for Jesus in a situation where the church is very, very confused and church leaders are confused. And here at All Souls, um, wonderfully over the last year or so, a few of the same-sex attracted people here have begun to trust me enough to talk to me uh, about their life. And so I can tell you that um, right across the church um, here this morning, there will be people in that situation holding roles of leadership and serving and courageously standing for Jesus in their daily life. Um, one of the bishops I've been talking to over the last couple of weeks um, said, we just need to avoid the being the good people and the bad people. Um, yes, um, there are only bad people here this morning. That's the Christian gospel. Uh, every single individual here sexually tempted. Every single individual here a sexual failure when it comes to resisting sexual sin. Um, but every single one of us can all ask Jesus what do we need to do to serve you in the midst of our own particular temptations? And uh, Jesus will answer without that, you know, dividing us into the good people or the bad people. And the, the current decision facing the bishops is because they've committed to giving us a clear way forward on same-sex relationships by mid-January. Um, and the work I've been doing the last couple of weeks is just sort of back office work, really just sort of sharpening the ink on the menu that they're going to choose from. Um, and they are now going to choose, and no one knows what they will choose on the menu. But there have been some bishops who've spoken publicly, um, and they've said things like this. They said, well, we know what the Bible says uh, throughout the Bible, and we understand that the church has traditionally said the Bible was where we hear God's voice. But... Um, they want to suggest we can hear God's voice in the changes in society and maybe in new discoveries about sexual identity as well. And so they want the church to choose to call holy sexual activity that God's word calls sinful. And it feels to some of them, not all, but some of them, like actually that would be a very small choice to make. A small change. In other words, we're in 1 Samuel 15 territory. Almost a necessary change if we're going to go on being taken seriously by the rest of the country on all of the, the really big things. And the, the survey that uh, fewer than half the country would now call themselves Christians, that is weighing on their minds. It's, of course, not true that it's the first time it's been like that. Um, ask some Christians in 250 AD or 650 or 850, um, but it does weigh on their minds. So what would 1 Samuel teach us in advance of that decision? What would Saul say? I think Saul would say, I tried that. Small disobediences, small changes, small refusals to listen to God. And the kingdom, it has been torn from people like that and given to David. Jesus, the Jesus who is asked about marriage and sex in uh, Matthew 19, you could look up and he says, well, let me tell you about Genesis 2. Uh, let me tell you about God's unchanging plan for sex and marriage. The Jesus who calls lovingly everyone to repent and be holy, who will include everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, but who challenges all of us to repent and turn to him. And I have to say, actually, as I talk to same-sex attracted Christians, 
I think heterosexual people really haven't begun to take that seriously in the way that same-sex attracted Christians trying to follow the Bible do. But Jesus' lead on it is clear. So in this period where we live, waiting to see Jesus, it is actually a terrible thing, a terrifying thing, to be an under-shepherd of Jesus and to face a choice to listen to God or to turn away from him. And the 12th to the 14th of December is that choice for 120 bishops in the Church of England. Pray for them. Pray for them and the choices they will make. I think we see here the, the tragedy of Saul, all of the hopes, all of his gifts, all his strengths, all the good beginnings. I could um, tell you stories about wonderful bishops and their, their story of uh, living for Jesus and those people now agonizing over what to choose in eight days' time. Loving, kind people who read the Bible every day, uh, but yet facing that agonizing choice. Um, it's even in many ways the same as chapter 28. Um, bishops who would very much have seen themselves as humble before God and listening to him and still would do that in other areas, who are now saying to God, tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. Uh, what do you do if God has told us what to do, but we won't do it? And we have here what will happen after in one way or the other. Uh, because the God we believe, the God we have, is the same as the God Hannah prayed to in chapter 2. So please pray for the bishops, pray for them, and let's pray, come Lord Jesus, as well. So I'm going to pray now. Dear Father, we pray for our bishops. We pray particularly for Bishop Sarah and Bishop Rod. Pray for them as they prepare and pray and think. Pray for them as they meet together in eight days' time. Um, Father, we pray that you would give them your grace, your wisdom, your mercy. Pray, Father, that they would turn to you and would find their strength in you as David did. And, Father, pray for the decision they have to make. Lord, would you give them hearts to listen and pray for us that we would serve you in whatever situation we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name, amen.